Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 20th, 2016. This is episode 1811 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is a special show today. It really is. This is June the 20th, 2016. But Jack, you already said that. Big deal. It's June the 20th. What's that mean? June the 20th is the Survival Podcast's birthday. Today marks eight years. Eight years of the Survival Podcast, and I'm pretty jazzed about that. I have to tell you honestly, I've never done any one thing other than this for eight years, other than maybe be a father or a husband. Professionally, I've never lasted that long with anything. I've always wanted to do something differently or what have you. So when people that advise entrepreneurs say that follow your passion is bad advice, my response to them is bullshit. Absolute bullshit. If I hadn't followed my passion, there would be no survival podcast, and I would still be drifting from one thing to the next, doing things, you know, God knows what. Probably had a heart attack by now. Probably still weigh over 300 pounds if I hadn't quit that world and uh, if I hadn't yet had a heart attack. But I am doing great things because I work with great people, and that is you. And I would like to, at this point, send out a special thank you to every single person in this audience that has supported me in any way over the years, whether that's by being a member or buying something through an affiliate link or just telling one person about the show. Thank you so much. It could not happen without your efforts to support my show. And uh, one of the best ways to support the show is the Member Support Brigade. So I'm going to talk about that just a little bit at the front of today's show. It's a great deal, and to celebrate our eighth-year anniversary, I'm going to offer a 50% discount on your first year of MSB for anybody that's kind of on the fence or anybody that has an account that expired and you'd like to renew it. You can just log into your account and you'll get an expired message. You can use the same discount code. The discount code is HEAT, H-E-A-T, HEAT, because it's hot out. It's really hot out. My wife said I went through 17 shirts last week, and which by week she meant Monday to Friday, just from changing my shirts and throwing them in the laundry and putting a new shirt on because that's how hot it is outside. Um, it's, uh, it's brutally hot, so heat will be the discount code for this June sale on our 20th anniversary. That sale runs for one full week, real week, so Monday to Monday, so Monday night next week, midnight. It expires. You guys know me with my discounts. I don't care if your dog ate it or whatever. Uh, when I run a sale and I say it ends, it ends because that's called integrity. And we're going to be talking about integrity among other things today. But real quick, my plug for the MSB today will be at the beginning instead of the end, obviously, because it's already started. But I just want to read to you, just read all of the companies that give discounts to the MSB Here you go. Safe Castle Royal, Western Botanicals, Alerts USA, Old Grouch Military Surplus, USH2.com, KnifeKits.com, Survival.com, The Berkey Guy, Backwoods Home Magazine, Black Belt Magazine, High Mowing Organic Seeds, The Victory Seed Company, Self-Sufficient Life, The Soil Cube, CampingSurvival.com, BulkAmmo.com, Alerts USA, Be Found Alive, ValerieAzanoff.com, Paladin Press, Nodak Arms, JM Bullion, The Permaculture Woodshop, Doctor's Nutrition, Two Timbers Display Cases, Luke Han Callahan's Guide to Microgreens, Lenwood Leather, A Andrew McKnight, Pretty Loaded, Iron Edison Batteries, Bob Wells Nursery, Tactical Woodgast, EcoSense, Conflicted the Game, Infidel Body Armor, Primal Power, Simply Cleansing, Cleansing Progressive Gardens, Progress Earth, TN Technical Supply, Dark Angel Medical, Mai Tai Coffee, Darby Simpson Consulting, TSP Gear Shop, Black Dragon Tactical, Doom and Bloom, Harvest Eating, Old Grouch Military Surplus, 180 Tech, 
Terroir Seeds, The Olive Basket, Marsh Creek Farmstead, and The Tool Merchants. Oh, yeah, one more, FishingYoyito.com. <sighs> guys, even for me, a professional broadcaster, that was tough to get through. <laughs> It's a long list, guys. That is the type of thing I'm talking about when I say we give you discounts on things you're probably buying anyway on a membership that pays for itself. And now at 25 bucks for your first year, how could it be better? Anyway, happy birthday to the Survival Podcast and the TSP community, and thank you all. And uh, if you've been on the fence, now would be a great time to consider joining. Or if you've let your membership expire, great time to renew. And you can, yes, do it by mail. Uh, just write the code on the form. And if you want to know how to join by mail, click on Members on the Survival Podcast. Click to the bottom, and you click a link down there at the bottom. It'll show you uh, a form you can fill out and send on in. And one more, because already the question came in. Yes, you can get half off silver, so uh, instead of two ounces for a year, one ounce for a year during the sale. All right, so with all of that, what are we going to talk about today? Um... Lots of topics. I uh, said long list. Here's another long list. We're going to talk a little bit about the Orlando shooting at the beginning of today's show and um, some inconsistencies I see around the way this stuff's being reported. I've been called a conspiracy theorist, and I've been accused that my Facebook feed has turned into the Alex Jones channel because I dare question anything about this. I'm going to talk to you about one particular thing that bothers me. I'm going to give you three explanations for it. And one explanation is the most benign and most likely, and it still says... They're sculpting the narrative in the media, which is the real issue here. Uh, but I also want to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories in general, and I've got a great piece to play for you on conspiracy theorists called Shut Up, Conspiracy Theorist. It is satirical, and you will hear uh, from people in it that you know are typical conspiracy theorists telling you about conspiracies like Hillary Clinton, Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, John Kerry, and the Don't Taste Me Pro guy who doesn't really rank up there with them, but... I don't know, maybe he does. We're going to talk about commercial real estate prices. Remember I said that there's a crash coming? Well, <laughs> uh, apparently there's a new report out. Uh, commercial real estate prices are set to fall at least 5% over the next year. I'll tell you why that's a bigger deal than it even sounds like. We're going to talk about something called empty lung exercises. I haven't talked about this since episodes in the 700s, uh, and we were at you know episode 1811 today, so it's been a long time. Something I learned from Valerie Asanoff, and there's not a lot of information on it online. We talked about making it into an ebook one day. Val never got around to writing it. I stopped doing that type of promotion work, so I'll just tell you what Empty Lung is and why you might care and some cautions to go along with it. Uh, the first empty knife stakeholder to actually auction his knife has done so. He got a 409% return on his investment. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Uh, watch out for a gotcha with the Weber Spirit Grill and big box stores. I'll tell you about that today. Uh, it's actually a great grill, but it can be a sucky grill. Uh, if you get it from the wrong place, but it has a great additional thing you can get from that place, but you can't get anywhere else, but then the grill sucks. What does that all mean? Uh, well, I'll tell you about it when we get there. Moving and dealing with guns and stored food. Moving as a prepper. Ugh. I'll sum it up with this. The last time I moved, I said in the future, if I can't sell it or give it away, I'm going to set it on fire. That's how I felt the last time I moved as a prepper. The arrival of self-driving vehicles. As soon as at hand, it's going to start out with a bus, a 3D printed bus. No shit, I'm serious. I'll tell you about that today. Um, determining your price point for a real estate investment. This is something that I think there's a lot of people that, I don't know, don't get this one, and it doesn't really change no matter what the market does. comes down to a couple key things to consider. Um, I also said the schools were going to be collapsing. School districts, whole school districts collapsing. And uh, there's so much this week that you might think I stacked it. I actually admitted a lot of things that, that actually completely verified my show I did on Four Years of Flux last week. Um, but Chicago ISD is in danger of financial collapse. Uh, 
by the way, just going on there, LinkedIn owner in a uh, address to his workers after telling them, yeah, I'm selling the company at Microsoft, it states the following, millions of workers will be displaced from their jobs. And I'll tell you what he thinks needs to be done about that. I will talk about why I absolutely loathe and hate 529A plans, because somebody asked me a question about it, and I basically said, stop doing that, that's dumb. And then I promised to address it on the air in more de uh, detail. Uh, and then right back into four years of flux, the dying mall industry. We all know that malls in general are on the down track, even though there's some really successful, trendy, big, giant ones. But you know they got billions of debt coming due? Yeah, we'll talk about what that means as far as commercial real estate crashing yet again. Again, I didn't stack this, guys. I omitted a bunch. It was so much came in this week that it just totally backed up what I've been saying uh, about this. And then... Uh, a final story today, a story that drives home why we need the Granddaddy's Gun Club. And from an angle I never even thought of. From an angle I never even considered. And it's very, very important. And I've seen enough with families after death uh, in the family to know, yeah, this is, this is something that's probably a bigger deal than I ever considered. And we need this to prevent it from happening. Because I'm going to tell you a sad story uh, that probably didn't have to be sad. And I'm sure that the person that passed on never thought it would end this way. With all of that, before we do that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year 1811, because the episode is 1811. I have the War of 1812 begins in 1811. And I have the Luddites sabotage progress. I also have, in other news, Avgardo's Law is published. If any number of gases are of equal volume, temperature, and pressure, they contain the same number of molecules. We have Jane Austen publishes Sense and Sensibility. Great movie and book. Sensibility means lack of sense. See, chuckle Ed. And Harriet Beecher Stowe is born. She will write Uncle Tom's Cabin, the novel that suggests that slave owners are persecuting Jesus. Uncle Tom being a foresaid Jesus figure. All right, I'm going to read The War of 1812 begins in 1811. The battle takes place in the territory of Indiana near Tippecanoe River. The Indian tribes have formed an alliance to resist an incursion of white settlers. A Shawnee named Tukumasa organizes an alliance along with his brother, the Prophet. He receives messages from the gods. They establish a central camp called Prophetstown that acts as a supply depot and training camp. About 1,000 Indians live there, and this has made Governor William Harrison nervous. Secretary of War authorizes Harrison to negotiate with the Indians, so Harrison marches his troops to profit down and arranges to meet with the Indians the next morning. All seems to well, but that night the prophet receives a mystical message that says the white man's gunpowder has turned to clay. The Indians surround Harrison's camp, but Sentry spots them and fires a shot. I guess it wasn't clay. The camp is awake and Harrison's men leap to their feet, but they are silhouetted against the campfires and go down hard. Harrison mounts the first horse he can find, a black horse that saves his life because the Indians... Looking for Harrison on his white horse, the prophet is singing songs of victory, but it is soon apparent what the Indians have that the Indians have lost. The Indian alliance is shattered, and when the Americans find British supplies in Prophet Town, they are certain that the Battle of Tippecanoe was a British plot. My take by Alex Shrugged. Some historians believe this was the first battle of the War of 1812. People's attitudes on both sides became very firm after those British supplies were found. Governor William Harrison had let his guard down somewhat when the Indians were so willing to talk. Frankly, it is difficult to predict what people will do when they don't know themselves. After the battle, Harrison took the nickname of Old Tippy Canoe. Many years later, he ran for president with the campaign slogan, Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. Yes, reminding voters that he was an Indian killer really helped his campaign. 32 days into Harrison's administration, old Tippy Canoe dropped dead. 
making John Tyler president. When it was time for re-election, Tyler made his campaign issue the gathering of the Republic of Texas as a state, but James K. Polk took the issue away from Tyler and signed an agreement making Texas 20th state on December 29th, 1845. Um, my little, I'll just make this one short today. Because they found the British supplies, it was it, the public made up his mind. Okay, just think about that when I talk about conspiracy theories. It may have been the case, but this is how easy it is to sway the public. If you can give them one thing to latch on to, they become convinced of it, and any discussion about it is unheard. All right, we'll just save it for later. And with that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot Slingshot and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. So I want to talk a little bit about the Orlando shooting from a different angle than the little bit I've talked about it so far. If you noticed, I haven't said much about it. And I want to say I'm going to talk about some things that are conspiracy theorist-like today, okay? Not light, but like. Um, and I'm going to tell you that I don't like the word conspiracy theorist because it's been used as, like, just... Um, it's like a slur that just shuts people up. Like calling them a racist. It's like, oh, you're a racist. And I'll play you a little parody thing at the end of this segment that will kind of drive that point home. But I don't like the word conspiracy theorist because it lumps everybody together, including the people that are plumb nuts. And what I want to kind of tell you about today is a video that's, that's, that's out on YouTube from a guy who probably is a conspiracy nut. Okay, he probably is to the extreme that I'm going to talk about here as well. But the, the, the video is valid. It shows a guy wearing two red shoes, all right, being carried by two of his friends down the street, very ominous looking. And they kind of, there's a fadeaway. And this, this, this little reel, along with many other people being carried, has been shown by countless news organizations, local, national, international, all over the world. This this scene of this guy being carried has been shown. It's part of the like B-roll footage that goes along with this story. And there's a cutaway every time. Somewhere, somehow, another camera angle picking it up, there was enough of it released long enough that it got into the hands of the people out there that question everything, and good for them for questioning everything. And what it shows is this guy who supposedly can't walk being carried by his friends being set down at an intersection, the guy that was being carried playfully shove his friend in the shoulder, and the guy laughing and kind of dancing around. This is about three hours after the shooting stopped by best estimates, okay? But that's, that's what it shows. Now, I posted this and said this could be crisis acting on Facebook, and I, I want to point out I did not post this on the TSP page or the group page. This is my personal feed to get a feel for how people will respond to this. And what I basically said is, you look at this and you tell me what happened here. All right, and now, now I'm going to say, before I go into this any further, when I go into these conspiracy things like this, there is no gain for me. I gain nothing by doing this today. I gain absolutely nothing by doing this today from a financial standpoint. If anything, 
it will hurt me financially. The concept that you're going to go extreme to attract people and build a business like I've built over eight years is ridiculous. Okay, And that demographic in general is not generally the type of demographic that supports what I do. So even if I brought in 20,000 people for that, I probably wouldn't make a dime off them. They'd listen for a while and go away because I'm not going to give them what they want all the time. I'm not Alex Jones, despite what I've been slurred with. I've been, I think me being called Alex Jones is slurring me, by the way, guys, just so you know. So there are three possibilities here when this happens. Number one is, and I do believe our government employs crisis actors around actual crisis. And I want to be clear. I am not saying the shooting didn't happen. I'm not saying it is a false flag. I am not saying that there's nobody that's dead. I'm not saying any of that shit, and I think that's crazy talk. And I'll tell you how that gets used against people like me in just a second. Okay? But there's three possibilities. One is the crisis actor. So you've got this scene going on, but you need footage like this to make an emotional impact. They take people, they mock them up, and they put them right in the middle of the crisis and they video them. And the reason that they were happy-go-lucky at the end of it is because they weren't really part of it, and they thought they were off camera, and it wasn't supposed to matter anymore, and that is the least likely of the three possibilities. But they all lead to the same conclusion. They all lead to the same conclusion. The next scenario that this could be, and this is actually highly likely, but probably the least probable, or less probable than the third, okay? So it's in the middle. That's what I'm putting in the middle, okay? And that is that the news people get there, they're looking for footage, they're looking, they talk to people, and they, they're talking to these guys, and the guy's got actually was injured somehow on his leg. He's kind of doing better now. You know, he, or they don't really need, you know, they could get in a car and go somewhere or whatever, but, but they say, well, you know, we carried him. And the news guys are like, well, could you carry him so we can just video how it looked? And they set it up, and they videoed it. That's another possibility. Then the most probable thing is actually what Frank Sharp, getting all mad at me and calling me a conspiracy nut and saying I want this to be true, said, and it still leads to the same place. Well, what might have happened is they were away from this place. They set up the, the, the response center near the club because a lot of people pointed out they're heading back toward the club, which looks odd. So I think the hospital's on the other side of it. Okay, So he's hurt. He has been shot, maybe he's been shot, maybe he's been cut, who knows, but his leg has been hurt. It's not to where he can't stand up, but he can't walk on it well. So these guys are carrying him back down so he can get medical attention. It looks, it's benign, it's exactly what it looks like. And when they get to the intersection, they take a break because they've been carrying this guy. There's two guys carrying a fairly large guy, and they need a break, and they set him down. And maybe the guy that's carrying him says, man, my legs are tired from carrying And the guy, the guy, when he quite playfully pushes him and the guy laughs, he says, you think your leg hurts because you're doing the best you can in a scenario, a scenario like this. Okay? And that's, that is the most probable, though I'm not going to rule out number two or one. Those are all possibles. But here's why they all lead to the same place. In any event, the media is scripting the narrative. That's why they cut that off there. That's why they did what's called a, a takeaway. That's why they, they, they cut there, they cut away, and they go to a different dramatic scene. Because they can't have that be part of the narrative. And what I'm telling you is around all of the, these things like this, the media is scripting the narrative to match what the government wants out of the narrative. This is why... 
When somebody says, hey, that person said this and that doesn't make sense. You shut up. You have no right. You are evil. You are horrible. You, the poor people. And you, like, like, like you're some kind of Hitler because you said what this guy says doesn't add up with what that guy says over there. This doesn't make sense. Like, like you're horrible and you don't have any sympathy for these people that have died. Okay. And again, I think if you think that no one died in this, that this is all fake, you are part of the uber conspiracy nut job crowd and you're hurting. You're not helping. Okay. Unfortunately, those are the only people that do the work to dig shit up like I'm talking about today. All right. So we're at that point with all of this. And people, but, but when somebody says something like, well, I think there was an actual witness, somebody that was there. We know they were there. There was a second shooter. Oh, they're just confused. Whenever somebody's testimony doesn't match the narrative, it's the fog of war, they're just confused, it was confusing. But anything that matches the narrative is not to be questioned at all. This alone tells you that there's an agenda being pushed through the media, and they're not above doing things like using crisis actors and giving people scripts. There's another video out, there's tons of videos calling this lady out. And best I can tell, the, I'm not sure, but best I can tell, she really is a mother, She really is the mother of a child or a young adult that was killed in this massacre. And I feel terrible for her if that indeed is true. And it looks like it's true because there was a funeral for the kid or the guy, young man and all. To me, anybody in their 20s is a kid anymore, right? But there was a funeral. You can't fake a person that's known. It was you know, known previously being killed. In, you know, what did they sent him to Tijuana or something like that you know, on the government. I don't buy that. But at the point they make these two vi different videos with her where she's calling for gun control, she's crying and it looks fake as shit. It looks absolutely fake and she looks like she's reading a script. She comes off like she's reading a script. And the way she's crying is a well-known way to fake cry. And, and it is to basically cough, slow or, or low, low cough, like quiet cough, and turn it into a cry. And it works like this. <laughs> If you try it, you can do it yourself real easy. You go, <coughs> and you just downturn. <coughs> and she's not just shedding a tear. Not a single tear. Now, there's a, the other, again, you're back to possibilities here. It's completely fake. This kid never existed. It doesn't seem to add up. This, this woman's, you know, been around enough that we know that she existed. Her son was known to exist. I think her son's dead. I don't think she knew whether her son was dead or not during this video. And the other possibility is they, they shaped her story, got her ready, and then put her on and said, you know, you gotta look more upset. You, you gotta look like, you know, you, you, you like, and, and you say, well, they wouldn't do that. Well, of course they would. They do shit like this all the time. Anybody that's worked with the media, especially around crises like this, knows they stage shit. It's not that they're not, they're lying about what happened. They're lying in the way that they present it. And I don't really know what happened with that lady, but I'm telling you, it looks fake as shit to me. And, and I, I don't want to be the guy that judges how somebody should grieve or whatever, but I'm telling you that the, the technique is so well. Talk to somebody in law enforcement about this fake crying using the downward cough to do it. Anybody that's skilled in interrogations knows this technique. I'll tell you right now that it is the case. How do I reconcile that I also believe that this lady really lost her son? Again, I think the most probable thing is that she did lose her son. She had a predisposition to be in this direction. And whoever shot that video 
and the, and the production people around it wanted to script this narrative this way, either by their own thing, because there's so many people like this in media, or at the direction of higher-ups, and saw an opportunity and capitalized on it and used this person. And that they'll probably now dogpile, the government will pick this woman up, just like the, the mother from Sandy Hook, And, and, and prop her up with money and set her up with her own, you know, organization and roll her out that way if it works for them. That they will do stuff like that. Now, this is where I'm going to go a little bit total conspiracy on the whole thing. I'm going to tell you what I think happened here. And I don't think it's what the extreme conspiracy people are saying. And I don't think it's the people that are just going, oh, it just happened. And it just is what it is. And it, it, it looks like what it is. And mistakes were made, but that's, I, I don't think so. So the official narrative is that this guy was interviewed multiple times by the FBI. He is the son of an Afghan immigrant who has a, uh, an internet TV show that's pro-Taliban. That His father has been involved with the government multiple times. This guy's employed by GS4, a security organization used by government for, for different important things all over the country, all over the world, where he has to have background checks and shit like that. The co-workers in that organization said, this guy's, you know, they raised the red flag. This, they saw something, they said something. This guy's, a, there's something wrong with him, right? His ex-wife says he used to beat me and shit, and he's a radical. And the FBI investigates him and says, oh, he had a kid, and he's got a family now, it's okay. And they just go away. Well, here's one thing we do know. And I, I don't have links to all this because I read a bunch about this over the last week everywhere I could find it, everything that seemed credible, and even things that didn't seem credible, to get all the sides of the story. But we know from FBI-released records that not only was he interviewed by agents who said, I'm here from the FBI, and I'd like to talk to you about this, he was approached by what you call FBI assets. These are people who pose as being something else other than an FBI agent, a friend, a sympathizer, whatever. And they've used people like this, these assets in the past, to instigate people to, 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 to do attacks. This was done successfully here in Dallas, Texas, where uh, a, a Islamic male was convinced that he was talking to real people who were sympathetic to him wanting to blow up the IMP building in downtown Dallas. They gave him real explosives, real explosives with inert detonators and a cell phone that he could use to trigger it. And they, they encouraged him to go ahead with his plan. When he made the cell phone call that was supposed to detonate the bomb, he signaled to law enforcement that he did it, and they came in and they grabbed him. So we know they do that. We also know they screw shit up like this. And all I have to say, unless you're close-minded to that, is fast and furious. That they run sting operations and things get out of hand and get out of control. Okay, so we have a guy, because here's why I don't believe the whole, we just uh, decided it wasn't really, there wasn't enough, and we, there wasn't really any reason to continue the investigation, and we just kind of let it go, oops, it was a mis oops, right, okay. Ted Kennedy was on the frickin' no-fly list. Ted Kennedy! Senator Ted Kennedy ended up on the no-fly list. This guy gets multiple investigations by the FBI. Okay, he's, he, he's approached by undercover assets. We know both of those are true. And, gee, we just didn't think to put them on the watch list or the no-fly list. Even though all of the, the we got to have, we got to put people on a no-fly no list, no-watch list, should not be able to buy a gun. It should not. It's just wrong. So I think he had handlers that either instigated it and made it happen, least likely. Right? I'm not going to put that and say my government wouldn't do that. And I'll tell you why you shouldn't believe that in a minute. Concrete evidence of why you shouldn't believe that they wouldn't do it. 
Or more likely, they were working him. They lost control of him. They thought he wasn't operational yet. Or they got diverted to another investigation. They, 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 his, his, his shadows lost him in this. Didn't think he was ready to go through with it yet. And then he did. And I'll tell you why I think that's what happened. Or they, they, they made it happen. One or the other. We had way too much information, way too fast about this shooting. Way too much. Absolutely way too much. They knew everything. And not they. The, the, the media had every detail before the smoke was cleared. When I got up on Sunday morning, they knew everything. And they'd been reporting everything for longer. They knew everything about the ex-wife, about the current wife, about everything they knew. About the only thing they got wrong is they kept calling the gun an AR-15 when it actually isn't an AR-15. Other than that, it was almost like, I'm just saying, it was almost like they had a whole press kit ready to go. Way too much, not that the government knew it, that it was disseminated through the media way too quickly. As though there was some foreknowledge of something. And I would like to believe that when my government does shit like this to their own end, that they generally are trying to run a sting or something. They don't want to let the guy get away. But I believe it happens. I believe it might have happened in Sandy Hook, where we have radio of the police saying they have other people in custody. We have one point where you hear on the radio, I've got them spread eagle on the ground. We have children from Sandy Hook that said when they went to the fire station, they had two guys in, in handcuffs on the floor. What, you don't believe them? Oh, they were confused. They said somebody shot at them. Maybe they didn't. Oh, you evil bat. You see what I mean? This is the dichotomy in here. So I absolutely think that there was something going on that they're not telling us. And exactly what it is, I don't pretend to have all the answers. And people that do generally don't. Okay. Now here's what I'd like to submit to you. Every single thing that I just told you, every single thing that I just told you is rational, well thought out, logical, and possible. There's nothing crazy about it. But many people that hear me are going to say, oh, he's just one of those conspiracy nuts. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. Hold on to that thought. And here's why. Because there are videos all over the place. The whole thing was false flag. Nobody died. It's it, it, There's the biblical conspiracy theorist. This is all foretold in Jeremiah or something like that. And this is the Illuminati and this is the, the devil cult. And I mean, just craziness. And I'll tell you what I think our government does. I think they feed that delusion in those people. I think they cover things up that they could let out. On purpose, I think they provide misinformation at times that they can explain away later to feed the delusional because they love the conspiracy theorists. They absolutely love the conspiracy theorists, the conspiracy theorists, the, 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 the extreme conspiracy theorists. And again, I don't like that word. The extreme loons are what allows them to get away with so much. Because as, as long as you have those people out there talking completely nuts, you, you faked the death of 49 people, and the injuries of 51 more. There's no bodies, no home was shot, nothing ever happened. Come on. Do you, do you know how many people are interconnected to this? How many people you'd have to keep quiet? How many people you'd have to bring on board? This isn't like it was like a pop-up gay nightclub, like where it just showed up one day and a bunch of gay people showed up. This is a well-known establishment. These people go there all the time. They all know each other. There's no way to cover that up. 
But as long as they're out there, anybody that questions anything, like me, will get lumped in with them. Now, I do want to say this. If you don't think our government would ever consider, at least, staging deaths of American citizens in fake funerals, then you don't know about Operation Northwoods. Operation Northwoods happened in the 60s. It was designed to bait Cuba into attacking us. It would have definitely involved the death of American citizens, and we would have let it happen. And I'm going to read just one line from Northwoods, and I'm going to, I'm going, the, the, the document that came out. This is a government document, line item 11. Sink ships near harbor entrance, conduct funerals for mock victims, maybe in lieu of 10. And that's, and number 10 is sabotage ship in harbor, large fires, uh, napalm. So, <laughs> they're gonna napalm our, our ships with people still on them, by the way. Or maybe we'll, you know, maybe that's too extreme. We'll, we'll sink a ship near the harbor entrance and conduct funerals at, for mock victims. This is a, 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 a U.S. military document. This is fact. This is absolute fact. I have a link to a video, a great video, uh, about 11 and a half minutes long. On Northwoods, you can watch today if you want to know more about this and what the government did. And by the way, Kennedy, when he found out about this, he flipped his shit over it. He threatened courts martials if it wasn't all dropped. And not long after that, just saying, I'm, oh, that's another conspiracy. Well, hold on. No, that happened. Now, you can come up with multiple explanations for it, but all of that happened. It's all public record. So now I'd like to play something satirical for you today, and we'll drop this conspiracy t stuff. And we'll go on to the typical things that we talk about on a listener feedback show. But here's why I said this today. Because, again, there's, not, there's no gain in this for me. But here's the truth. And this is the integrity I've done this show for eight years with. And I want, if you kind of do other things, please give me 30 seconds and totally focus on what I'm saying for the next 30 seconds. I can no more profess to believe something I do not than I can profess to not believe something that I do. This is what I believe. This is what logic dictates in these situations. And you are not being told the truth, and the media is scripting things. And if you don't believe that, the problem is you probably do. You guys all know the media is scripting their bullshit to you every day. And what, they're just going to magically turn ethical because this is a catastrophe? You guys are smarter than that. Now, anyway, if you've ever wondered how to shut somebody up that's a conspiracy theorist, here you go. And again, you're going to hear from... Uh, From, from notable conspiracy theorists like Hillary Clinton, Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, and John Kerry in this video. Since you can't see the video, I'm telling you that. So when you hear their voices, you go, that. yeah, that's who that is. Anyway, here we go. How to shut up a conspiracy theorist. They walk among us. They breathe our air. Shop at our stores, drive on our streets. They are conspiracy theorists, people who make the outrageous claim that people in positions of power conspire to consolidate and expand that power. Their notions are absurd, their pronouncements are insane, and their ideas are dangerous. As a civilization, we have moved beyond giving hemlock to those who would corrupt our young. In this day and age, we just respond to them in a firm and dismissive manner making clearly visible to all in the immediate area that this person is a conspiracy theorist and not to be debated with. Resident expert and 30-year CIA operations officer Dewey Claridge demonstrates. 
Don't give me the don't give me the conspiracy bullshit. Come on, you're you're a more intelligent man than that. Well, come on, come on. I mean, come on. Listen, listen. There has never been a conspiracy in this country. This is how to respond to a conspiracy theorist: quickly, firmly, and disparagingly. To simplify, let's reduce the response to this. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. Observe. I mean, let's remember here: the people we are fighting today, we funded twenty years ago. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. You know, is spending a million dollars on that last three months of life for that patient? Would it be better not to lay off the, those ten teachers and to make that trade-off in medical costs? But that's called the death panel, uh, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. I, I will tell you, Director Deutsch, as a former Los Angeles police narcotics detective, that the agency has dealt drugs throughout this country for a long time. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. For variety. The eminently rational Penn and Teller present an alternative response. We're Penn and Teller, and conspiracy theories are bullshit. Good job, boys. Let's try again. If there is any conference which required transparency, which required democratic accountability, it is the Bilderberg Conference. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Good job, Mr. President. I don't believe in this notion of some sort of secret societies controlling people. But of course, in any political system, there are sort of over-the-table and under-the-table arrangements. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. What do you want me to talk about? Yeah. A fraud? No, it wasn't a fraud, but I'll be glad to talk to you if you'll shut up and let me talk. The United States government actually did carry out on our citizens experiments involving radiation. In one experience, scientist experiment, scientists injected plutonium into 18 patients without their knowledge. In another, doctors exposed indigent cancer patients to excessive doses of radiation, a treatment from which it is virtually impossible that they could ever benefit. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. Were U.S. government officials aware of drug smuggling in and around the Contra movement? And did they simply choose to ignore it? One U.S. senator says, absolutely. There's no question in my mind there is a complicity in the flow of drugs into this country, period. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. Also, are you a member of, were you a member of Skull and Bones from Collins and Bush? Were you in the same secret society as Bush? Were you in Skull and Bones? Thank you for cutting my mic. Thank you. Are you going to arrest me? Excuse me. Excuse me. What are you arresting me for? Whoa, 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 whoa. Any questions? This public service announcement was brought to you by the friends of the Department of Homeland Security, the Information Awareness Office, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the President's Working Group on Financial Matters, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Rhodes Roundtable Group, and the Bohemian Club. And remember, 
Ignorance is strength. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. And as we go on, if you if you do hear some peeping in the background, that's my uh, my turkeys. Uh, the 16 of them, they uh, are now free-ranging during the day while the cats are inside. They're still a bit small for me to let the cats out with them. The cats don't bother the ducks, but turkeys move different, and it's uh, the case that I'm still not comfortable with the cats being outside with them until they probably about double in size from where they are now. But um, turkeys attach themselves to you, and they know I'm in here, and they're looking in the window peeping at me, I guess because I feed them every day. So anyway, um, hope you enjoyed that video. One little thing on conspiracies before we continue. If you really want to, uh, to, to look into something that might make you question whether official narratives are officially true or not, you might look into the Oklahoma uh, state trooper who was conducting an independent investigation into the Murrah Federal Building bombing in Oklahoma along with a doctor. And uh, very close to this uh, officer's death, that doctor accidentally had a, a crash in a private airplane and died. There's a lot of people that were doing things like that that kind of disappeared in private airplane crashes, I'm just saying. Uh, and it could just have been an accident. We don't know. But here's what we do know. This is official record, and you can go verify this for yourself. And you tell me if something doesn't stink about this. So this cop and this doctor both end up on site at the Murrow Federal Building bombing all the way back in the 90s, okay? Timothy McVeigh, that thing, right? And uh, the doctor says that he gets there, and an FBI agent says, I need you to put a bandage on my arm. And he says, you're not injured. And the guy says, I need you to do this anyway. And the guy basically tells him to go F off because, well, i got to help people. Like this doctor just showed up because he knew there was a disaster and was looking for people to help. He brought his medical kit. He starts helping people. The officer sees some things that aren't quite kosher about this whole thing. He and the doctor strike up a friendship. They start doing research together, and they're building a file, and they keep it in a safe deposit box at a bank. Um, the officer starts telling his wife things. She thinks he's crazy, that the feds are following me, they're going to kill me, they're after me. Uh, and, you know, again, very close to the, I don't remember if the plane crash was first or the officer's death was first, but very close to the time, within days of each other, the officer's found dead. There's quarts of blood in his cruiser. He's over 100 yards away from his cruiser. His hound, hands are bound behind his back, and he's shot with a gun other than his service revolver, because cops still carried revolvers back then. Remember that? Okay. Um, but they don't, they don't have the gun that shot him. Just a gun shot him. Through the back of the head, with his hands bound behind his back, and the death is officially ruled a suicide. The FBI shows up at the bank uh, a couple days later, demands access to the security box. They get access to it. They take the shit out of it. We've never seen it or heard from it ever again, whatever it was. That's all true. That's all public record. You want to disprove it? Brother, go for it. Prove me wrong, because I don't want to be right about this stuff. Um, but here's what you're supposed to believe. The officer somehow wounded himself to bleed in his cruiser, dumps quarts of blood, and then travels 100 yards plus from his vehicle into the woods, and then either shoots himself in the head and then ties his own hands behind his back, or ties his own hands behind his back and then shoots himself in the head. Which one of those makes sense? And that's officially ruled an autopsy by a coroner? I'm just saying, it seems like a guy was tortured to find out everything he knows and then killed, and then just don't worry about it, we'll take care of it. I could be wrong, but that's what the public records say. So, anyway, you guys dig into that if you want. I want to go into other things today so we have a well-rounded show and uh, get into other topics because I know conspiracy theories, if they keep getting called, like questioning the official dogma is a conspiracy theory now, um, are not everybody's cup of tea. This email comes in from, let's see, it doesn't say, uh, Sapri, we'll just say. That's part of the email. Um, 
from Bloomberg, June 20th, 2016. Your crystal ball was tuned in again. Laugh out loud, but not really funny. U.S. commercial real estate prices may fall by as much as 5% in the next 12 months. Primeco says that. Uh, for Warren's, prices may fall as much as 5% in the next 12 months, buying refinancing opportunities to emerge for some investors. U.S. commercial real estate prices may fall by as much as 5% in the next 12 months amid tightened regulations, a wall of debt maturities, and property sales by publicly traded landlords. Pacific Investment Management Company said in a report Monday, a global surge in demand for U.S. property investments to push real estate values to records may wane as slowing growth in China, oil, or oil prices, and a dislocated debt market threaten to halt six years of price growth. Uh, PIMCO portfolio managers John Murray and Anthony Clark said in their report titled U.S. Still, U.S. Real Estate, a storm is brewing. Quote, storms form when moisture and unstable air and updrafts interact. End quote. They said a similar confluence of factors is creating a blast of volatility for U.S. commercial real estate. PIMCO said there may be opportunities in real estate shakeout allowing some buyers to snap up properties at bargain prices. Additionally, a wave of maturing debt from last decade's boom starts coming due this year, opening a window for investors to fund borrowers who come up short. Okay, so what they're basically saying is commercial real estate is going to drop about 5% in value. Now, you might think that's not a big deal, but see, it's, it's coupled with something that is a big deal. A lot of these debts are reaching maturity. Now, this is where you got to understand that commercial debt is different than consumer debt or uh, individual real estate debt. So you have a 30-year mortgage on your property, and that means you just service the debt for 30 years, and the debt remains constant other than the property taxes. In fact, when you reach a point of not having to carry PMI, primary mortgage insurance, you could actually have your, your, your debt service level go down. Okay, Commercial real estate is done on shorter terms, on larger quantities of money, and does not have you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac helping out. So they run a different you know, cycle, adjustable rates, balloon payments, etc. And basically a lot of commercial real estate works this way. You borrow uh, $20 million for your commercial real estate project and you pay back a certain amount of money over about 10 years. And you're way short of paying back the $20 million. And then maybe let's say you still owe $15 million. And what everybody does is, well, you just refinance the debt, and you just keep rolling the debt, just like our government does. Because you're the big boys, you're in commercial, you can do shit like that. Well, uh, if you're doing commercial properties and you don't have enough tenants, you don't have enough cash flow, and they look at your books and say, well, you can't service your debt anymore, and the interest rates are going to be higher, you can't, you can't roll the debt. You can't get another loan. And a lot of these companies, and I'll just make this one short because we'll have proof that I'm right about this toward the end today, are saying, screw it. We'll just walk away from the property. We just won't pay the debt. We'll just give it back to the bank as though that's what you're doing, right? You know, Basically, they're making a business decision. The, the, the property is no longer worth what we owe on it. We can't put tenants in it. We're losing them to either e-commerce or nicer facilities, and we're done. We'll just leave it. Well... This creates a cascade. And what I said is over the next four years, you're going to see one of the largest commercial real estate uh, collapses that you've ever seen in this country. And this is just the start. Just the start, and it comes in right on the heels of me saying that it's going to happen. I'm just saying, read the article for yourself if you want to know more. Um, the other important thing to understand there before we move on is the 5% drop is huge. 
because these debts service at such a slow rate of amortization. Okay, so basically the banks are making good returns on their money, and they're 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 floating the loan to keep making the returns. They 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 amortize very very little. So if the value of the property drops by five percent. The remaining debt may exceed the value of the property, especially if that's overall. The five percent is like best case scenario. That's the best commercial real estate with the worst. So your lower performing tiers may come down fifteen, twenty, thirty percent, and now you have someone who's in risk of default in the first place, trying to get a fifty million dollar loan on a forty million dollar property. See, it's just not a good thing now, is it? So this next one caught me like, wow, I forgot all about that myself. I, I don't train this way anymore. I probably should because it is a great way to train. But I'm going to throw out my disclaimer right now. Before you do any exercise, discuss them with a doctor and make sure you're healthy enough for them. Okay? And I'm not saying you should do this, honestly. I'm saying this is what I was taught by Valery Azanov, who is a Russian martial artist and former KGB operative. Okay? And that is absolute fact. It says, uh, it's from Kyle. He says, I cannot find anything on empty lung push-ups. In episode 763 or 785, you said something about Russian doing an empty lung exercise, like slow push-up while holding their breath. I've been trying to find something like a how-to video and some type of information. I have been unsuccessful. Is this type of workout still valid? Can you elaborate more on how to perform it? I can certainly elaborate more on how to perform it. And I can also say, if something like an exercise was ever valid, it's always valid. It either was valid and is valid, or isn't valid and never was. I mean, that's how you have to think about this. Just I always like to like dial the logic clock in, right? So just because like you know, either five minute abs worked or it didn't. It's not like because four minute abs came out, five minutes no longer valid. That's not how exercise works. So empty lug conditioning is about developing an oxygen debt more rapidly, so that you can get the conditioning from oxygen debt from your exercise more quickly and therefore have less repetitive uh, motion, and therefore are less subject to repetitive motion injuries. Anybody that's ever been, especially in the Army, Army and uh, Marine Corps especially, because you Navy guys and Air Force guys, unless you're something special, you don't do a whole lot of push-ups once you're done with uh, your entry training and whatever. Um, but, you know, the Army and Marine Corps, at least when I was in, just addicted to the push-up. The push-up is the go-to exercise. Knows that you have chronic amounts of rotator cuff injury in the military from very young people, you know, in their 20s, that normally you would never see unless they were doing some kind of really risky sports activities with rotator cuff injuries. And we're not talking about, you know, Rangers and Special Forces and Marine Recon guys that have a huge propensity from the, the dangerous stuff they do. We're talking about, you know, like typists and clerks and cooks and stuff that just do PT every day. One, two, three, four, one, one, two. Remember? Okay? Push-ups, push-ups. Does injury to the joint. Repetitive motion causes injury. It does. And that's one of the things at play here. So if we can get the tra same training effect with less repetition, we reduce injury. Real evil guys, these KGB guys and these Russian army guys, right? Okay, so the way this works is you take a huge breath in and you exhale and you get every ounce of air out of your lungs you can. And you start with just that. That's all you do to start out. You don't you don't go running headlong into this. And then you wait a certain amount of time until you breathe in. Don't wait, at least at first, until you feel like, I've got to do this. But when you start to feel like, I really could use some air now, go ahead, take a deep breath in and a couple deep breaths, 
and get used to the experience. Okay? And then as we get used to that experience, we move into a really, you know, rigorous exercise called walking. And we walk and we breathe in and out. And we walk a steady walk. So we're not exhaling every step, right? But we're just we're doing a walk like a basic cadence, normal speed walk. And they actually have a way of walking that's really unique as well that involves a way that you roll your feet that I can't do an audio, so I won't try. Maybe I'll do a video someday on it. That actually makes you able to walk a lot longer with less repetitive injury to your knees, by the way. So you take your breath in, you take your breath out, and you're walking. And when you, when you get all the air out you can as you're walking, you can just walk in a circle around a room, not real fast, not real slow, just a normal speed walk. When you get to that point where you let all your air out, you, you don't breathe back in. You keep your lungs empty, you continue to walk, and you count your steps. And when you feel anything that tells you you really need to breathe, you're going to go early the first time, so you learn your limits, so you don't pass out and knock your head, okay? You go ahead and take a breath in, you breathe in and out, and you do several times in and out with the same breath cadence, and you don't change your speed of your walk, and you keep walking, and then eventually when you feel ready, you feel recovered, in and out, every single ounce of air out where you're trying to almost push your abdomen back against your spine to totally vacate your lungs of air and begin to walk and go to that same number. And then get one more step and then breathe in and do that and work your way up with that. Until you find a point where you don't think you can go further, but you can go one more further than stop. You start to develop your own understanding and tolerance for your body. And then we move into actual exercises. So what we'll do is now we have to actually learn to do a push-up like this without the empty lung. A long, slow push-up. We do one push-up, we go down 10 seconds. One, two, three. And we slow that down to where our chest is right to the floor on the 10 count. And then we come back in a 10 count. One, two, three, four, five, six. And what you'll often find if you've never done this is you'll get up to like six, seven, eight, somewhere in there, and it'll be very difficult. And instead of doing empty lung at this point, you do a, a breathing that's almost like a like a Lamaze breathing for a woman in labor. Quick, short breaths, in the nose, out the mouth. And you force your way through that exercise. And you get to where you can do that exercise while you're breathing. And then... We're going to take that once we can do that. At, at, and it, if, if it, you can do it really easy, slow it down till it's not easy. So you, you got to find a point that it's hard and do that exercise and then condition yourself to be able to do that exercise at that point that was difficult. Then what we're going to do is we're going to accelerate it by about 50%. So if I was, ta if I was, if, uh, if I was going down to a count, one, two, three, four. Now I'm going to go down to a count. One, two, three, four, five, six, like that. So about a, a double time speed. It's still a slow push-up, but it's a lot faster than what our limit is. We're finding our way about halfway in between it, and we're going to do that push-up with empty lungs. And another way to start is we get to push-ups. We're going to do five push-ups. Not super fast, not super slow, none of this counting, just you know, down, up, down, up down, up. And we'll do three or two or four or five, whatever we can do, empty lung. And then maybe we'll just sit there locked out and breathe, get charged back up, and then we'll do five push-ups at that speed, breathing. 
And then we'll get kind of, we'll just lock out. Then we'll go empty lung and we'll do a slow push up. And then, and then breathe. And we can take this empty lung exercise into any exercise. But you have to learn your body and you have to go slow and you have to know your limits because if you try to do it with bench pressing, you got 300 pounds of weight. You can only bench press 300 pounds, no problem. But you're going to do it a little bit slower and you do an empty lung and you don't have a spotter and you pass out and you end up with a barbell on your neck and you're dead. It's not my fault that you didn't listen to me, okay? So this is, you are, you are depriving your body of oxygen. It can lead to lightheadedness. It can pass out. Some of you have conditions like asthma. I'm not saying everybody should do this. You talk to your doctor. But this is one of the many ways of unique training that I learned from Val. And it's dramatically effective. That's all I can say. And it reduces your training time and your emotions. And that's really the thing. And it also develops a psychological warrior mentality of, As you, as you proceed slowly, right? I can't tell you how many times the vow said, no, 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 you know your limits, you stop. You've not done this before. Does that tell you, I mean, you know, these evil Russian guys, that's how they talk, right? So, but you find those limits and you push them slowly upward. And you begin to develop a consciousness that what you think's not possible is possible. Okay? So that's all about empty lung that I can give you in an audio. Just real quick, it was a few years ago, I guess two and a half years ago-ish, that we uh, rolled out the MT Knife Stakeholder Program with Patrick Rohrman. He sold 100 stakeholder positions at uh, $50 a piece. That sold out in six minutes. And as I said last week, um, one of the stakeholders decided, I need some money. I'm going to sell my knife, my first edition knife. So he kept his other two because he's done three limited editions in the stakeholder program. And uh, I'm going to keep that, those, but I'm going to sell the, the, the alpha, the first knife, which is basically your stock certificate for the, the 100 stakeholders program. Put it on eBay, and it sold for $2,551, which means somebody sniped it. It was sitting at $2,550, and someone must have come in in like the last second and, and threw that dollar over the top and sniped it. But um, when I do the math of uh, return of investment calculation, That means in a little over two years, three years, I guess, um, the uh, the stakeholder that sold his position got a return of 409%. 409% return. Not bad on 500 bucks. So that's just a good thing to, uh, to, to hear. I mean, I'm just happy for that. And uh, I don't think I'll be selling mine anytime soon. I'll just say that. So uh, it's, uh, it's good to see that that program has weathered itself that well and I'm looking forward to LEO4 Patrick when's it coming man I'm ready to I'm ready to give you some more of my money anyway with that let's move on to uh, something that is kind of some follow up on Weber Grills um, I talked about the Weber spirit and being kind of the little brother to the Weber Genesis and if I was going to buy one I would definitely step up to the Genesis and the spirit has gotten some bad raps from some mass production here's why Uh, this is from Eric on uh, TSP uh, blog, where we publish the show notes to all the shows we do. And this is creative thinking. I want to congratulate Eric here for thinking this way. Here's the deal with the Weber Spirit Grill. Weber cut a deal with Home Depot for the Spirit 310 model. They include their cast iron gourmet barbecue system, or GBS, which is a round removable center section, in the special Home Depot model. But they also cheapen the rest of the grill. The door is no more. It is really a flimsy removable panel. And there are other cuts on the rest of the grill as well, like the hood has only one panel. 
It does not have a second insulating panel like the mainstream Spirit 300 series does. In other words, it sucks, because that's like all the things that make it great right there. The problem is the gourmet barbecue system is not available outside of Home Depot and this grill. Weber does not have it on their website and calls to them to turn down the sales and calls to them turn down the sales opportunity. It's widely sold in Europe, however, but there is no shipping to the States. Yes, Weber sells a stainless steel version in the U.S., but the cast iron version is not available outside of Home Depots. <laughs> the fundamental problem is when the wife loves the gourmet barbecue system and all its accessories, yet the husband recognizes Home Depot's Weber Spirit 310 as stripped-down model. I ended up buying a Spirit 330. The mainstream model is not stripped-down like the Home Depot version, and the 330 has a few extra features as well. But that did not get the, uh, the, the GBS to make the wife happy. I went to Home Depot and looked at their floor model. It had clearly been sitting outside for a few years, and the inside was filthy. I grabbed a quick picture of the serial number. I called Weber and explained that I had screwed up the grates on my grill and needed a replacement. Weber took the serial number along with my credit card and promptly shipped me the GBS crates that my wife wanted. A bit of a scam, sure, but I paid for the new grates. I would have paid even more up front if they had just been willing to sell them to me. They set the price at $50 plus shipping, and I did not complain. My point is, the Home Depot Weber Spirit Grill does not represent the Weber Spirit line. It is a bastardized, offshoot drone of an exclusive contract for folks in Orange. I avoided it and got the regular model Weber instead. So that's something that I read, not just for the creativity and figuring out how to get what you wanted out of it, but the reality that... What you see on the floor of a box store may not represent the actual product as listed on the manufacturer's website. Sometimes for the better, like the gourmet barbecue system, whatever that actually, I've never seen it, so I'm not sure what it actually looks like or if really is worth all this or not, but I like cast iron, I will say that. Um, and uh, so, but to the other side, like if you take a Weber grill and you take that wonderful lid that has double panels with insulation that's so heavy when you lift it, and you go down to a single flat steel without any insulation, you've taken, you know, not everything that makes a Weber grill the best grill you can buy right now, but half of it, and ruined it. So thanks for letting everybody know that, Eric, and I thought it was valuable enough to put out on the air. Next question comes from uh, Shelly. Shelly says... Um, My question is, do you have a recommendation for safely transporting guns and ammo across state lines besides the obvious? We'll be moving from Oklahoma back to my home state of Texas next summer. Okay, so Oklahoma to Texas transporting guns. Lock your guns up, put them where they're not visible, make sure they're safe and secure, and don't worry about it. If you get pulled over in Texas or Oklahoma and they say, you, you know, you have guns in the vehicle and you say yes and you explain what you're doing, they're not going to care. Right? And in Texas, you, even without a concealed handgun permit, you can have a loaded gun in your vehicle. You can't brandish it at people or anything, but if you have it like under the seat or something, that's actually kosher in Texas because you're considered traveling. Now, I don't know what Oklahoma's laws are. If you're moving between states, you know, where you might have to drive through naughty states uh, that don't believe in your rights, like New Jersey, you need to know the individual laws, regulations, and what to do. So I can't touch that. That's, that's way too much legal advice with 50 different variables in 50 different states. But I'm just going to say on this one, I would have all my guns cased or wrapped up or whatever. I would have them out of sight, out of mind, and I would store my ammunition away from them, which is always good advice. So the obvious is all you need to do to move your guns from Oklahoma to Texas because both states believe that you have a right to be an armed citizen and your right doesn't end when you leave your home. Okay, 
The next one, question part two, as far as long-term stored food, did you just start using up what you had before you moved and then buy more when you relocated, or did you try moving at all? We're trying to decide what is best. We'll be sure using the milk products, but not sure about moving just the veggies, meats, beans, grains, etc. On one hand, some of the near are 10 years old. Honeyville Pharmacy Hydro Freeze-Dried will help us to know to use these items best if we need them for real. On the other hand, it makes me nervous to get out our larder so low. What would Jack do? I would move most of it, but you would use some of it, you know, maybe to get some of that experience and replace that. If you have a significant storage, using it all now and then restocking it could create a financial burden that you don't need while you're moving. You have a year, so using some of it up and, and, and then purchasing it when you get land in your new location, it's fine. Um, really low-cost stuff may not be worth you know, moving or trying to use it all. It may be worth donating. Um, you know, I'm talking like five-gallon pails of like pinto beans or rice or stuff like that. You may find that that stuff, especially you know, with a move with, as a prepper, there's so much bulk involved, that it's such a low-priced item. That if, with a big capital IF, you can find a charity that will take items like that package that way and use them, that it might be better to donate them and deduct the value of them from your income tax. Uh, because they take up a lot of space, they have a lot of weight, and they're not really much money. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, you can probably fill two five-gallon buckets of pinto beans for about 40 bucks at the most. So that may not be worth moving. You have to make that determination for yourself. As far as your dehydrated stuff, veggies, meats, uh, like that, that are from, like, uh, uh, Honeyville, that are packaged in number 10 cans, you don't have to use that. You don't have to worry about the expiration dates on it. I don't even care. Uh, that stuff will be good for 20, 30 years or more. Okay? So that's probably worth moving. It's not easily replaced. But you got to make your own decisions based on, you know, how many trips are you going to have to take? And if it makes an extra trip, it could be a loan worth replacing or donating or using. Um, Oklahoma to Texas, that can be a really short move, really long one. And you, so, again, you kind of have to make your determination there. When we moved from Arkansas to here, I made four runs myself. Dorothy and I made two runs, and then we made one big run in the end. Uh, and we still hired a freight company to take the big stuff. So it was complicated. Um, one of the audience members, I remember the comment very cleanly, and they because they, they just it etched into my mind. And when I wrote an article about it, they said. I read prepper and moving in a single sentence and almost threw up. And that's kind of how you feel. Like, And for me, it was really crazy because we had made that location in Arkansas a bug-out location. It had it basically fully equipped to be at least a three-month bug-out location. And then we moved there and brought all our other shit with us. And uh, I'm not doing it again that way. Um, for all the advice I just gave you on some things... I would donate it, I would sell it, I would use it, whatever. Even though I don't like the ramifications of it, it's just, and it's something we need to think about as preppers, is how mobile are we really? How mobile are we really? And it might be a time to reassess your preps, like if there's certain things you don't really use much anymore. Like if you use wheat and, and, and beans and rice and you have buckets of them, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you don't use that stuff much anymore, you know, you might really want to think about at least reducing it. Because, you know, five, ten, five-gallon buckets take up a lot of space can be used for other things in a move. But you might really also want to consider staging your move. Like, can you, you know, rent a, a U-Haul 
trailer and take a, a run with a bunch of stuff and, and stage it in advance. Stuff that's low value but bulky. That's kind of what we did. I put a bunch of stuff here in the house. Um, you know, we had it locked up. We got a couple of those fake TV things and we had some light timers going and stuff like that. So it looked, and we left, uh, like one of our older vehicles here. So it looked like somebody was living here already. Uh, after the for sale sign went away, so that we, we didn't have thieves possibly hitting us while we were, were not actually quite here yet. And we talked to the neighbors and said, you know, keep an eye on things and what have you, and uh, it worked out. Uh, and I think that was probably the best thing we could have done in our circumstances. But, I mean, I, I kind of feel this way, like, if I have to do this ever again, if I can't sell it or give it away, I'm going to set it on fire. <laughs> it sucks. I'm sorry I can't give you more encouragement there. Moving on, more on automation. Um I, I haven't, I don't think, ever received as much pushback in emails. Uh, not like, I hate you, you suck, whatever, just you're wrong. On anything I've ever predicted before in my life, other than how automation is going to disrupt jobs over the next 10 years, and how in, after the next four, we'll, we'll have to accept the fact that it's coming. That, that, so that's why I talked about it in four years of flux. It's not like it'll be done in four years, but by 2020... People are going to look at this and go, yeah, we're screwed. We don't know what to do about this. And we should be trying to figure out about what to do about it now. So, like I said, a deluge of stuff has happened in the last couple of weeks that have taken that prediction and just said, and, and, and other predictions, and it like real estate collapse and stuff like that, and said, yeah, it, Jack's right, unfortunately, again. Here's the, uh, here's the, uh, the, the, the new article today uh, come out from... All right, rnt.com, uh, roadandtrack.com. I will warn you about this article. When you click on the link, if you want to read it yourself, there's going to be this big advertisement crap that shows up, you know, the pop-ups, the fade-ups, that even a pop-up blocker won't block. And uh, it's they're trying to get you to subscribe to Road and Track. And, and it, you, you, there's a link in it that says, no thanks, I, I like more important cards or more famous cards or something like that to, to close it. That's the only way to close the damn thing. So if you don't want that in your face, maybe you don't want to click on this link, but I'm going to read the article for you. If you want to read it for yourself, I just want to warn you, it's got one of those annoying advertising things going on. This is by Jay Bennett. It says, Watson will soon be a bus driver in Washington, D.C., IBM has teamed up with Local Motors, a Phoenix-based automotive manufacturer that made the first 3D-printed car to create a self-driving electric bus named Ollie. The bus has room for 12 people and uses IBM Watson's cloud-based cognitive computing system to provide information to passengers. In addition to automatically driving you where you want to go, using Phoenix Wing's autonomous driving technology, Ollie can respond to questions and provide information similar to Amazon's Echo Home Assistant. This bus debuts in Washington, D.C. area for public to use during select times over the next several months. The next several months, they're going to put it, they're going to have a vehicle driving itself around Washington, D.C. with nobody driving it and the public riding on it over the next couple months for select times to see how it works, right? The bus debuts today in Washington, D.C. area for the public to use during select times over the next several months. And IBM Local Motors teams hopes to introduce Ollie to Miami and Las Vegas areas by the end of the year. By using watch-and-speech-to-text natural language classifier entity extraction and text-to-speech APIs, the bus can provide several services beyond taking you to your destination. You can give Ollie commands to take you to a specific location or somewhere generally like the closest grocery store, or you can ask the bus questions about how it works, why it's stopping, where it's going, 
Next, even what the weather will be like or the score to a sporting event. Ollie will even recommend a nice restaurant for you or tell you about local attractions. Quote, cognitive computing provides incredible opportunities to create unparalleled customized experience for customers taking advantage of massive amounts of streaming data for all devices connected to the Internet of Things, including automobiles, mirrored sensors, and systems, said Harriet Green, general manager, IBM Watson, Internet of Things, Commerce, and Education, in a press release. Quote, IBM is excited to work with local motor- motors to infuse IBM Watson IoT cognitive computing capabilities into Ollie, exploring the art of what's possible in the world of self-driving vehicles and providing a unique personalized experience for every passenger while helping to revolutionize the future of transportation for years to come. Yeah, no shit. There are many who believe the future will be filled with self-driving cars without individual owners. They come and pick you up like taxis. Clearly, a bus is the first logical step in that direction. They should just have named it Auto. Who knows why they should have named it Auto? Because he's the bus driver in The Simpsons, that's why. Okay, so I want to just kind of give you the the short of this. IBM and local motors motors already have today on the streets of Washington, D.C., driving the public around a freaking bus made with a 3D freaking printer that is driving itself and members of the public around Washington, D.C. You can ask questions about where it's going and tell it to take you somewhere, and it'll freaking do it. Not they're going to do it. Not it's a a, a staged idea. Not it's something that's going to happen sometime soon. This has already happened because this was written on June 16th, and today's the 20th. You didn't even hear about it because, you know, we have the news full of the election, the Aswan Circus in Orlando, and the kid eaten by the alligator. I mean, this is earth-shattering. This is what they've been saying is coming, and people are like, no, no, no. I mean, this is so revolutionary. If this was written on uh, April 1st, I would have uh, I, I would have believed that maybe it was a... Uh, like an April Fool's or something that it's actually out and running, but it's it's I vetted it, it's real, it's it's there, it works. Uh, the original source is Popular Mechanics. Um, it's a hybrid electric vehicle. It is absolutely true. It's 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 here, and a, an autonomous driving bus that you can talk to like Siri. What's the nearest restaurant for Mexican food? Three of these are pretty close to you. I'd like to go to that one, please. Okay. Okay. This is just one, but it's all it takes. This is going to be like breaking the four-minute mile. One guy did it, and a hundred people did it. Because it was, oh, we can do that now. I'm telling you guys... Um, The disruption coming this time around is not nothing we've ever seen before. And you can keep digging down in the sand, burying your head and saying, it'll all be okay and there'll be new opportunities. And, you know, who's going to build the robots? Other robots are, I'm just saying. Um, It doesn't have to take all the jobs. 10, 20% without replacement and we are in a world of hurt. We are in a total different world. We have to adapt to a new reality. And that's where we're headed. So keep paying attention to this versus all the stuff they tell you to pay attention to, because this is where you're going to find the opportunity to be somebody that does thrive in this new economy versus somebody steamrolled by it, which is what most of the people are going to do because they just don't believe it. 
And when you don't believe something, you get your ass beat. See, in 2008, when I started this show, eight years ago, I said very clearly within the first month, get your money out of the stock market, it's going to crash. And people didn't believe it, and they got their ass beat. And people that did believe it got out of the way of the freight train and didn't get their ass beat. Here it is all over again. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Moving on to taking advantage of things. It says, hi, Jack. I love the show. This is from John. He says, thanks for all your work over the years to bring great content. How do you decide a price point for real estate when considered as an investment? The land in the area which I live seems very overpriced. Uh, when, would it, when would it be a good price point to invest? A lot more details. I just recently moved to wild mountains of Montana. You are right. The isolated survivalists don't do community. Land here is extremely overpriced. One acre lots cost thirty to fifty thousand dollars. Lots from the five to twenty uh, range about ten thousand an acre. The area has a long history of speculation, mining, and timber town now selling real estate with a view, but there's very little movement of property. Property prices have come down since two thousand eight, but I don't see the market improving for sellers anytime soon. Most of the purchasing has been retirees moving here, and they will be returning to family when health demands it or when their time on earth is done. Demographically, the area is likely to decline in population by 5 to 10% as it is to stay stable. The land that is for sale is beyond pricing based on productivity. While some of the land could potentially return three to $5,000 per acre a year as a nursery or commercial sale orchard, only with labor and additional material costs. Valuing the land as an investment and anticipating potential increases in prices is how this land becomes so overpriced. Combining the demographics of speculative prices makes it seem like it could be 20 years before prices return the current asking price. How much should I hope for prices to reduce before thinking it could be a good purchase? 50%? 75%? Again, thanks for the shows and considering this question. See, you're, you're going about this wrong. Um, you're assuming that buying land where you are will ever be a good investment. And it may not. It may not. It's not right now. It's not right now. And, and let me tell you kind of how I feel about investing in real estate. I am not the person that believes that it ever makes sense to buy a piece of real estate, cash, credit, or otherwise, and then sit on it and do nothing except hold it on the speculation that it will increase in value so that you can get a return by selling it in the future for a higher price. There's much less risk to doing the same damn thing, cherry-picking good quality stocks, than there is to doing that with land. Real estate is bought not just for that eventual equity capture and, and then sale, but for other reasons. There's many other reasons um, that we can buy real estate. But if I'm going to buy real estate, even if I see it as a long-term investment, It better do other things for me during that period or I'm not touching it. Okay, so what I mean by that is, you know, I'm kicking around the idea of putting together a group of like 10 guys and looking for like 100 acres to use as like a hunting camp and fishing camp. We can maybe put little small houses on there, but they're more like camping facilities and stuff like that. And doing that as a limited liability partnership. I, I like the idea of doing that. I think I've kind of skinned how to do that. And property is really expensive here in Texas, anywhere that's close enough to make it usable. And that's the key. It has to be usable. It has to be something that I can get in my car right now and be there before it's dark. Wake up, spend the whole day hunting tomorrow, and come home that evening. And it has to be that way for everybody that's part of the deal to make it work. Right? That's one thing a piece of land could do. And then that piece of land might be able to be rentable or leasable for other purposes that generate income. And it might actually create tax advantages 
for the partners in that company. Whether I was doing it with partners or alone, it would do those things. That's one function land could perform. Another way that I would, if I was going to do a strict investment play, I would be looking to buy a house that I can then put a tenant in, and that tenant pays me enough money every month to more than service the mortgage so that I have a cash flow that I can stockpile enough money to service the property because, you know, when a pipe breaks or something, it's not the renter's obligation to fix it, it's mine. So then I can actually have the property appreciating in value. I can have somebody else servicing the debt. I can have cash flow from the property. I can have tax advantages of depreciation against the property. This is an investment. Buying a lot and going, there it is, I'll hold it till it's worth more money, that is wasteful of your money. And there's other ways to make more on your money. As for a price point, every market is different, every situation is different, and we are always looking for undervalued property. What you're telling me, at least as I can see at this point, is there's no undervalued property in your market. I'm not going to say that I believe you 100%, that you can't go find undervalued property if you look hard enough. But based on what you've seen, it isn't there. I don't buy property at fair market value. And I certainly don't buy property at over market value. Good, bad, and different, I only buy property that due to circumstance I can get for below market value. And that's how I handle real estate, period. I don't care if I'm in Montana. I don't care if I'm in London. I don't care if I'm in freaking Miami. I, well, you can't do it there. Then I don't do it there. Then I don't do it there. See, there's a wonderful thing about this country. If you're insistent on real estate, nobody says because you're a Montana resident you can't buy land in Florida or Virginia or California or Texas or New Mexico or wherever. The reason I won't take my hunt club idea or my gun club idea outside of Texas I might, Oklahoma, if it's right across the Red River, is because the function I want the property to perform requires that I be able to access it and use it in a reasonable amount of time. But if I wanted to have a vacation home and I could take a major tax deduction while renting the property out. By the way, did you know this? This is an interesting thing. You can rent your own property for 14 days a year or less tax-free on the income you gain from it. Why? Because some jackass congressman or senator, I don't remember which, up in, I think, Wisconsin for the Green Bay games, wanted to be able to rent his house out for the 14 games of the season and not pay tax on it. So he wrote his own loophole into the law. But that loophole applies to everybody. So there's, there's a lot of strategies in real estate. But one it might be, okay, let's say I let's say instead of taking one vacation every year or every other year to Florida, let's say that Dorothy and I had gone to a point where we're taking four or five vacations a year to Sanibel. At that point, it might make a real good financial decision to find an opportune property there to purchase it, to create, you know, to go through like an Airbnb model of rental to get at least some of the debt serviced by others, to take all of the uh, interest on the loan and turn that into a tax deduction and at the same time depreciate the property as a commercial property or a rental property anyway or not there might be other ways that we would play that piece of tax code but if a, an investment that only is held for the purpose of appreciating value is generally not a good investment especially with the kind of money you're talking about for real estate see another example of this and this is why I say to hold 5 to 10% of it or less is precious metals 
precious metals are a great hedge against inflation, and they come in a lot of different forms that can have intrinsic value and, and, and allow you to transfer wealth, and they have things they do apart from that. But as far as if I just buy a 100-ounce bar of silver and I set that in my safe, it doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't pay a dividend. It doesn't give me a tax advantage. What it does is give me the ability to anonymously exchange wealth with another person, value for value. So there's value. That's the only other thing it does other than we're waiting to see if it becomes worth more money or not. That's why we keep it as a minimal part of our investment. Now, real estate, as expensive as it is, you know, 5% of your net worth, you're not talking about much real estate then. The only way we can expand it beyond that type of a look is to have it do other things. Vacation property, recreational property, secondary properties, rental properties, all of these things make sense. And then the price point sets itself. Because if I'm using it for recreational value and tax advantage, I can put a value on that. And then I can take that value and translate it to what I can afford to pay and the value I get back and say, this is my, this is my budget. And then I can look at the property and say, does the property match the budget or not? And does it match my exit strategy? If it's a rental property, then I can do a market analysis. I can determine how much I can rent the property for. Then I know how much debt I'm going to have to service against that. And I know how much cash flow I need to not only have cash flow worth doing this, but to have cash flow capable of creating an emergency fund to provide you know, things to the home. Because I have to look at insurance and everything, total cost of the home, plus pipes breaking, losing a tenant for two months, taking two minutes to replace them, having to replace carpet, you know, management expenses, all of that. But I can formulate that, and then I have a number. And this is where we, we don't get emotional with real estate. I'm looking at property all the time in Texas. And what I keep coming back to is it doesn't match my budget, my needs, my wants, and it's above market value, or it's at market value. Well, Jack, why wouldn't you pay market value for property? Because if you work hard and long enough, you don't have to. And if we buy property below market value because of some perceived problem that we know we can correct, like it shows like shit because it's a house and it's got crappy carpet and crappy countertops and we can do the math and say this is $5,000 worth of work and this property would list and sell quickly for $20,000 more than they're asking for it. Because the one down the street like that just did. Then we can buy that property with an exit strategy. So that's how you have to think about that. And again, if you are insistent on property and you're telling me Montana's not giving you the, op the opportunities right now, stop looking there. I I'm sorry I can't make it change for you. But if you think those properties need to go down by half or more to be worth buying, then your gut's probably right. Don't buy them. Let's take another one. As we move on, so let me tell you, if there was anything I've ever said that's gotten more pushback than the automation thing uh, it, from the same podcast... It's that the school districts across the country are going to begin collapsing, both at the, you know, the, the primary and secondary level and at university level, that we're going to see this implosion. And for a different reason than we're going to talk about today, uh, because of people leaving the systems. Um, and also, you know, just saying, if real estate continues to go down in value in many places and the schools make their money off of that, and I'm just saying, if you have an economic recession and people can't afford to keep their homes, who's going to pay the taxes on them? I'm just saying. Uh, but here we go. Um, is the nation's third largest school district in danger of collapse? June 14th. 
So like seven days after the show I do on this, it comes out. Um, in September 2015, the Chicago Tribune ran an editorial that wondered whether Chicago public schools uh, district would collapse under its weight of mind-numbing financial problems. It hasn't yet, but money mismanagement, inadequate funding, and failed education policy are combining with a host of other factors to raise the issue of whether the nation's third largest school district is in existential danger. Uh, the governor of Illinois is fighting with the mayor of Chicago over funding. Just unbelievable. Like, just give us money. What's wrong with you, stupid head, right? The mayor is a long-term, uh, in a long-term fight with teachers over controversial pension system, charter schools, and other issues, and many parents remain furious with the mayor for closing dozens of traditional public schools three years ago while promoting the expansion of charter schools. It's probably the only reason they're not broke yet, by the way. Uh, teachers are working under expired contract and may soon stage their second strike since 2012 when the week-long walkout had public support. Dozens of principals, including some from the district's back schools, have, been de have decided to leave. But those who are staying warn recently they could see 39% cut in funding. That goes for teachers, after-school programs, and enrichment programs. I got an idea. Let's cut administrators. Right? That's what we could cut. Anyway, Chicago Public Schools' long and dire financial straits face a budget deficit of more than a billion dollars and must contribute $676 million to Chicago Teachers' Pension Fund by June 30th which the Chicago Sun-Times says would leave $24 million in the district's coffers. Long accustomed to barring its way out of financial ruin, the district has seen its credit rating drop to junk. Earlier this year, the district cut the size of one of its bond offers, as Reuters said, agreed to pay interest costs rivaling Puerto Rico's in order to lure investors to the deal. Anyway, I'm going to let it go. I'm just going to say that this is going on all over the country right now. That There are... School districts teetering on collapse. And this is, I think, what people don't get. It's not just the exodus of students from the system. That is happening in record numbers, by the way. The fastest growing block of education in America today is homeschool. Nothing else is growing as fast as homeschool. You can call it many different things, unschooling, you know, self-directed learning. But all of it itself, self-directed learning, homeschooling is the fastest growing educational niche that there is today. And you also have teachers teaching for 20 years or 30 years, depending on where they're at and what their contract says, and then being paid for the rest of their life. Now, let's, let's look at 30 years, the upside, uh, for a pension. Uh, and then they're going to get paid for the rest of their life. And I'm going to hear from teachers that hate me today. Listen, it's not about you. It's about math, okay? You guys are supposed to know math. It's about freaking math. So in some of these school districts, they're getting, like, Cadillac health insurance as part of their retirements. All right. So the teacher teaches for 30 years. Let's say the teacher goes to college at 18, graduates at 24, goes to Europe for two years to find themselves, come back uh, after traveling the two years in Europe at age 26, and takes a job. 36, 46, 56. They are now eligible for full retirement if they live to 86, that is 30 more years of paying them. Where's the money come from? See, this is the thing. Your property taxes are not high because we need good teachers now. Your property taxes are high because we're paying teachers who haven't taught anything for 20 years or more. It's not their fault. They're not evil people. They're not bad people. That's how the system was set up. It was set up on a Ponzi scheme that requires continuous growth. And the country's population isn't growing. It isn't growing. It's not 
growing. It's not growing. The domestic population of this country, in other words, if we take immigration out, we're already in population decline. We need a, it's like 1.66 children per couple to maintain replacement with a high marriage rate. We don't have a high marriage rate. We don't have a 1.66% growth rate. The only place that's having a lot of children anymore are the impoverished communities, the welfare communities. This has a breaking limit too. It's all intertwined. Now, you add the stress of this, of people starting to question, why do children need to go to a building for nine months a year, for 13 years, to learn stuff that most of which they'll never use? When we could learn all of that and more in a quarter of the time, more efficiently with a computer. It's all of it together, guys. The education system is about to fall on its ass at every level. If, if, if large universities, right, I'm not saying Harvard, Princeton, etc. will go away. There'll always be a place for college universities in our lifetimes anyway. But if you start actually doing the math, how many colleges are there out there? These colleges, if they're going to exist 10, 15 years from now, they're going to be virtual. 90% of what they do is going to be virtual. It, it, it cannot continue. And it's, it's literally collapsing at, at, from K through doctorate. It's collapsing. It, because we're, we're developing knowledge that doesn't translate into actionable usage in our modern age. And if you actually start saying to yourself, well, how do we change that? How do we fix that? How do we start educating our children in a way that they will come away with skills to actually adapt to the modern age? The first thing you realize is, well, to do that... We have to get radical. We have to take a totally different approach. And in doing so, that alone negates the need for this quasi-prison that we call public school, which is actually government school. Your children are going to quasi-prison for eight hours a day. You go somewhere where you're told where to stand, you're told how to walk, you're told what to do, you have to ask to take a piss, You have a time limit to get from one place to another. You don't get there on time. You get in trouble. If you leave, you get in trouble. There's police there. And you don't think that's a prison? If you don't think that's a prison, you know what it means? It means the fluoride in your water is working. Get a freaking filter. And the programming on your TV is working. Stop watching it. Get a filter for it. We call the filter logic. Anyway, let's take another one. Like I said... So much came in this week that backs up what I've said about automation and, and educational collapse. Um, back to automation here. So LinkedIn recently sold out to Microsoft, and the company did an incredible job of making sure that none of the peons in the company, they call them employees, um, knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Um, the company founder made a very impassioned, almost tearful speech to his uh his staff in an all-hands meeting about how wonderful they are. And uh, it's basically one of those things that we're going to be continue to be here, and, you know, you guys are going to be all right. And uh, this is usually – I'm just going to throw out a side prediction here that most of the people that work for LinkedIn will probably lose their jobs in the next year or two. And Microsoft will completely take over with their own staff because that's what always happens when these things happen. And uh, this guy sold out because he got, like, $50 million, and that, that's a good thing for him, right? Um, anyway um, – 
during his speech, here's, here's a piece of the article because it's long. I don't want to read the, the whole thing. In essence, Wiener said, this techno said technology and robotics in particular was accelerating in a way that millions of workers would be displaced from their jobs. These employees would need new opportunities and new connections to reinvent themselves, and LinkedIn was perfectly positioned to help them do that with Microsoft's help. Quote, that dystopian future where robots replace people that has been predicted in science fiction for decades, it's happening, he said. It has begun. And what amounted to headlines over a three-week period at some point will turn into a torrent of daily news. Whether it is the displacement of individuals and people by virtue of new technologies, or whether it is the widening skill gaps, whether it is the growing problem of youth-based unemployment, or record levels, of, record levels of socioeconomic stratification, creating economic opportunity will be the defining issue of our time. He also talked about his pride in the company's culture as an example of employees' fidelity. He pointed to the fact that actually quite a few LinkedIn employees had been aware of the negotiations with Microsoft but hadn't blabbed about it. Wiener didn't say exactly how many had known about the talks. Um, and you can read the rest if you want to. But the answer is not many. That's how many knew. Not many. I know how these things work. I've been part of these types of buyouts. I know how they work. Don't, don't, don't tell me. They, oh, they kept their mouth shut. Yeah, but you know why? Because this is why. The employees that you involve in these buyouts in general, they have these things called stock options. And they make lots of effing money when the deal goes down. So, of course, they keep their yap shut because they wouldn't want to blow it. Uh, it's not fidelity. Anyway, here's what's ironic about this. We have this founder of LinkedIn uh, discussing how automation is going to displace jobs while he sells his company to... Uh, another company that is all about technology and automation, Microsoft. That's how Microsoft's reinventing itself. And uh, you don't realize how many jobs LinkedIn has, has eliminated. LinkedIn is a technology disruptor. LinkedIn is its own recruiting service. I was another business I was involved in was, you know, technical recruiting. I can tell you that my old business partner's not doing well in that business right now that he had two recruiting companies. One doesn't exist anymore, and one is a shell of what it was. A shell. Why? Companies like LinkedIn. Because the candidate for the jobs that are available has all the power now. We don't need a recruiter. Recruiting is a massive industry. People made good salaries. We had employees working for us that were profitable to the company, making a quarter million dollars a year in their 20s with no college degree, and they've been replaced by job boards and by services like LinkedIn. And the founder of that technology says, oh, it's just starting. So keep believing that, oh, there'll just be new opportunities created by the dissolution of the old. Not this time. And let me, let me explain that a little bit differently. There will be new opportunities created. There'll be great opportunities created. There'll be incredible new industries created. But if we cut away a million jobs and we create opportunities for a half a million people, we have a net loss of a half a million. And they're permanent. They're permanent. Just like I told you about everything in 2008, I said the problem is these jobs have not gone to, to China and India. They've disappeared. The companies leaned out and decided we don't really need people to do that anymore. This is the 2.0 version. It's going to get ugly. Um, again, the man telling you this created a disruptive technology. He recognizes other disruptive technologies. And 
probably in such a way that he's like, you know what? Microsoft has lots of money. And this would be a good time for me to get out of this business because Microsoft's always just a little bit behind the technology curve. They, they come just a little too late to the game. They're kind of like Yahoo. They buy shit, they don't understand it, and they ruin it. And many times if you, they get really a bad rap. What they do wrong is they choose what to buy badly. And the people sell and choose what to sell wisely. Because LinkedIn is outdated tech. It's outdated tech. It's designed to help people find jobs. While jobs are being eliminated. And the jobs that are left are going to be really specialized, really technical, and high demand. Where the candidate has all the power. And right now, LinkedIn is a good platform for them. But for how long? For how long? What's the next platform for this? What's, what's the next? I mean, we have job boards and things like ZipRecruiter where we can put them out in multiple places and all. But what really is the next platform for this? The answer is I don't know. But it's not a, a, a professional version of Facebook, which is what LinkedIn is. It's not. It's it's had its day. It's It's on its final run. I'll tell you what. You take a look at what Microsoft does to this company by 2020. And you tell me where we're headed. Because I think if uh, if this was a public stock and I was holding it and uh, you know I could keep it after the buyout, like I could roll my shares over or whatever, I think I'd sell. Just saying. Anyway, let's take another one. This one comes in from Karen, and it says, Dear Jack, listening to your predictions about upcoming massive changes in education, I'm wondering if my family should reconsider our education savings plan. We're using a 529 and Coverdale ESA and have around 25000 saved so far for our three kids. If they follow a traditional path, they will attend college in the years 2023 through 2030. Our oldest is 11 and currently wants to be a veterinarian. The youngest is 7 and very interested in police military. In the middle is 9 undecided. Thank you for any insights. Okay, first of all, uh, let me tell you what my, my response was to this. Um, I hate 529s, period. Stop putting money in them now, no matter what. What if your kid wants to learn to fly a helicopter instead of go to college? Just one example. 529s assume your children will go to college. What if they're not right for it? This has nothing to do with my predictions. I will discuss this Monday. My view is they are the devil, all caps. And Karen says, thanks for the feedback. I've discontinued auto contributions to the kids' 529s. Their balances are in an S&P 500 index type fund. I will look forward to your future discussion, 529s, and need to decide what <coughs> whether to make a 2017 contribution to the kids' ESA accounts. Karen, okay, here's my deal with 529s. If every single thing I have said about the future of education is wrong, and education will look dramatically like it does in 2030 as it does today, I still loathe and hate 529s and anything that creates a penalty for money that you set aside for your children that could be used for anything other than educational purposes or anything other than what they call educational purposes. And it's just what I said. What if your kids decide they don't want to go to college? What if they don't want to go to college? I know that's crazy talk, but what if they just don't want to go? What if they decide, you know what, Mom, what I'd like to do is I would like to uh, to get my captain's license for a boat and do chartered boat rides. 
and I'd like to invest that money in uh, a boat to do that. And I'd like to invest it in school to do that. And what do you say? There's no future in that when there's guys that make incredible livings doing that? You're going to call it risky? I mean, you know, you might say you might want to go out and be like a second mate or first mate or something like that for a while, kid. But yeah, I'll help you do that if you can show me a plan to get there. You can't do that with a 529 without paying penalties on it. What if they want to fly a helicopter? My kid considered it. He didn't do it, but he considered it. And he was told, if you take that money out, you got to pay interest and penalties on it. Okay, listen. At best, you're talking about 18 years of savings. All right? We're not saving for retirement. We're saving for education. We shouldn't be taking much risk with the money anyway. Since we're not going to take much risk with the money, the returns are not going to be that high. That means there's not that much income. Okay? That means the income on it, even if it's subject to income tax, isn't that much income tax. Pay the freaking tax and keep the money available so the kid can do whatever's best for the kid if you're really saving for their future instead of your own bullshit dreams and trying to live vicariously through them, thinking they're going to grow up and be a doctor or some shit like that. The 529, the ESAs, all that shit is a good way to earmark money for something that might never happen. Do you know how dumb that is? I'm not picking on Karen. I, you know why I know how dumb it is? You know why I sound so angry? Because I did it. Because I did it. Because I believed this bullshit when I was in my early 20s. And we put aside over $40,000 for my son to go to college. He went to school for, I don't know, because it was such a, a fiasco. I don't even know how. I, he, he doesn't even know if he, if he has enough credits to have a two-year degree yet. One year at UTA, a bunch of bullshit with uh, community college and... Who the hell knows what he did with it? Spent half of it, the other half of it's sitting there. If he ever takes it out for anything, he ain't going to go back to college. We know he's not. I wish he knew what the hell he was going to do, but he ain't going to go back to college. What good is it doing? You know what he'll probably end up doing? He'll probably end up taking the money out, taking the hit on it, and using it to buy his first house. Which is probably, he would have been better off Because we made him go to school. We shouldn't have. That was another mistake we made. We made him go to college. You have the money, and you don't know. If he would have said, I don't want to do that, I want to do this, we would have let him do anything he wanted to do. But he didn't know what he wanted to do. you got to get out of the house. you got to figure out your life. So we made him go to school for a year. It's a mistake. I don't think he spent half it. I think he spent like 15. I think it's like 25 left in there. But wouldn't it be great if that money was just sitting there? Now, that doesn't mean I can't set it up in some way where I actually have control over when he gets it. And how he gets it. I can put it in a trust. I can do all kinds of things with it. I can basically set it aside in my own account, my own savings account, my own broker account, whatever I want. And just say, that money's for you when I approve of how you're going to use it. And I can dole out how. I have complete control now. And then when I give it to him, he has complete control. When you do a 529, you're letting somebody else decide how you can use your money. It's so much worse than like an IRA or something like that. Because an IRA, when you reach the age of withdrawal, you take the money out, you can wipe your ass with it, you can build a fire with it, you can blow your nose in it, you can buy a, an RV with it, you can take a vacation with it, you can give it to the Girl Scouts, you can buy a goat with it, you can buy coffee plantations with it, you can do whatever you want to because it's your freaking money. 529A, when you take the money out, you got to do what they say to do with it in the channel that they tell you to do it with. Now, Everything I see coming in the education sector just makes that worse. It just makes it worse. 
And I tell you, if you have money in a, in a 529, ESA, any of these things, um, you may want to see what the pain point would be to get it out now. Because the pain point might be less now than if it's going to be, let's say it's going to be 10 years before your youngest kid uses any of it. Okay. If you can get a good return on it for the next 10 years, when you when your kid says, you know what, Dad, dude, I, I don't want to go to college, man. I want to go down to Belize and train people how to surf. And you know what you say to yourself? That's not going to work. But you know what, kid? Here's five grand. See how long it holds you. See if you can get something going. And you might just call you up and go, dude, I got this great gig. And, I mean, you don't know. It's amazing. Sometimes people take shots at things like, I don't know, building a podcast out of a freaking Jetta, and it works. You just don't know if you don't try. And you know what your kids are going to want to do. And when I talk to parents, they're like, my kid's going to college. I'm like, you are an idiot. You are an idiot. How do you know that? What, what possible justification could you have for predicting the future 15 years in advance for your five-year-old that's going to be right for them? How egotistical is that? What you're saying when you say that, I know some of you are mad at me right now, but what you're saying is that you're so wise that you know what's right for another human being once they're an adult 10, 15 years from today. That's why I say it's egotistical. It is. I, I know, well, it's my son, it's my daughter. It's different when it's your son. No, it's not. Not if you respect your child as an adult, as they reach adulthood. Remember, what's your job as a parent? What is your number one job as a parent? To work yourself out of a job. To every day, every month, every year, to be able to remove restrictions so that child has matured enough to apply those restrictions in their own life effectively so that they don't require you, you know, like holding their hand uh, when they're when they're when they're on a job interview when they're 26. Do you do you want to have to like walk your 26 year old? Come on, son, let me walk you into the to the. Okay, the nice man's going to ask you some questions. Some of them can be tricky. I'll be right here when you come out, and we'll go have peanut butter sandwiches. Is that how you want to be as a parent, or do you want to be able to say, son, go get a job, daughter? I have complete faith in you. Go go kick life's ass. Go take whatever you want. If I can help you, I will. But go do it. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be coddling a teacup 30-year-old? Because that's what you're going to be doing if you take that approach. Well, it's the same shit. It's why we do this today. Well, we have to prepare for their college. No. As a parent, if you want to financially support your kid as they reach adulthood, that's what you should do, and you should use your judgment and discernment to make a judgment based on your experience that they don't have. Is their decision valid? But if you put it in a 529 plan... The state determines if their decision's valid. Not you, not them, not the two of you together. They are the devil. They are the devil. They are the devil. They are as bad as an HOA. And they're worse. At least you can move out of an HOA. And you might be able to sell your house and make a profit. It will cost you to earn your freedom from a 529. I learned this through my own version of what Dave Ramsey calls stupid tax. It's my mistake. Don't repeat it. Next up, and again, it just came in this week like an avalanche. And it's not like, it's just because I talked about it so people dug stuff up. It's all news stories. This is from June 16th. Today's the 20th. This is from four days ago. Um, it's on Bloomberg. You know, one of those, those crazy fringe publications, you know. America's dying shopping malls have billions in debt coming due. 
suburban Detroit Lakeside Mall with mid-range stores such as Sears, Bath and Body Works, and K Jewelers is one of the hundreds of retail centers across the U.S. being buffered by the rise of e-commerce. After a $144 million loan on the property came due this month, owner General Growth Properties, Inc. didn't make the payment. They didn't make the payment. The default by the second biggest U.S. mall owner may be a harbinger of trouble nationwide as a wave of debt from the last decade's borrowing binge continues, comes due for shopping centers. About $47.5 billion of loans backed by retail properties are set to mature over the next 18 months. Data from Bank of America Merrill Lynch show that's coinciding with a tighter market for commercial mortgage-backed securities where many such properties are financed. Read the rest of the article if you want to. This has been a long show today already. Uh, fitting of a eight-year anniversary show, though. But basically what this is saying is, see, it's what I told you earlier. People don't get that commercial loans are different than regular real estate loans. That, you know, imagine you get a... You get your mortgage payment this month, right? And it, you, you bought a house for $300,000, and you've been paying on it for five years, ten years. I don't care. Pick a number. And uh, you've been paying, oh, I don't know, $3,000 a month. And it says, please pay this amount, $311,000.21, which is more than you originally financed the property from. What are you going to do? you going to write a check? Most of us aren't going to write a check. Right? I don't have $300,000. And if I do, I damn sure ain't giving it to you for this house. I, I, I can't. Then I won't have anything else. I'll be done. I'll have nothing left. Like I won't be able to live. I have to wipe my retirement out for that. i got other things to do with that money. Right? Okay? So imagine you get, and it says, um, <laughs> please pay this amount, $144 million. And you're a big corporation. You own lots of malls that you have to service and maintain that are profitable. And you look at this one and go, it's cash flow negative. It's cash flow negative. In other words, we're losing money on the damn thing already. Okay, And you kind of look at your options of, ref like, will somebody give us $144 uh, million? And you, you come up with the answer of yes, but since we want it for this property, it's going to be expensive money. And we have all these like good things over here that we can invest that money in that will be cheap money. What are you going to do? You're going to do what they did. I'm not going to pay it. So now what happens? What happens? Think about it. What are they going to do? They're going to make them pay it? They're not going to make them pay it. They're going to take, they're going to take the property. Okay. You have a cash flow negative property. There's still a $144 million hole in it. They're going to walk away. And it's easier for them to do than you. And they'll still go out and get another loan tomorrow on a new property if they're, if they're profitable elsewhere. They'll find another lender that respects that decision and says, I'm evaluating this new investment, and uh, I think it'll, 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 it'll work long enough that I'll be somewhere else by the time it doesn't pay off. So I don't want to give a shit. But what happens to the property? It goes into rapid decline. Um Store owners that are still there maybe being a little profitable so really start looking for another place to go, or they consider closing the location because they know it's only a matter of time now before that mall is gone. It's going to go into receivership. 
Some interim management company is going to come in and strip every dollar out of it it can get. That's what it's basically going to be an individual bankruptcy, an individual entity bankruptcy. So the, the, this company that owns it will have a subcorp that actually owns it. They'll own the subcorp and they default through the subcorp. They'll, they'll set up a company for every individual property, right? And so that, that will be the entity that actually defaults, and then they'll just let it go into receivership, and they'll appoint a, a basically an interim manager. The court system will, and that manager's company will strip mine what's left of it, take as much money out of it as they can, run it into the ground, and it will be defunct. That's what will happen. More than just this one mall, by the way. I, I, I remember a mall this happened to you back in the 90s in Grand Prairie. It was a nice little mall, but you could tell it was on its way out. And all of a sudden, one day, like all the stores disappeared. And this is exactly what happened. The owner just defaulted. And... Uh, It ended in receivership, and then it got picked up by another company for like a song, and they put like a flea market in it, and that went broke, even though they got the property for next to nothing. So then it turned into like the biggest Tejano nightclub I've ever seen in my life, and that, even though it was popular and a lot of people went to it, it still wasn't making money against the property, even though it had been further devalued in its actual cost and burden. And then one day it accidentally, and I'm making the biggest air cloaks quotes you'll ever see, accidentally, like Dr. Evil, burned down. Yeah, it caught on fire. It burned down accidentally, right? Uh, yeah, you think maybe there's a little bit of uh, insurance lightning going on there? I'm just saying, okay? But this is part of the real estate drop that we talked about earlier today. It's all coming. It's all coming. And again, these are not things I want to be right about. Um, but this is, this is our future, guys. All right, last is... Uh, kind of sad, but it is encouraging that we're in the right direction with something we're doing here at TSP Community with Granddaddy's Gun Club. He says, and I, I again, I I started Granddaddy's Gun Club to defend our right to keep and bear arms. That's the main reason. And to, to reestablish heritage and tradition and community uh, among gun owners. And to build brotherhood and sisterhood and camaraderie. Um, and I think those are all noble. But sometimes when you do the right thing, You do other good things without knowing it. You have positive unintended consequences, and that didn't happen here. But if we do this right, it, it could prevent this from happening to someone else. It says, hi, Jack. This is from Patrick. I just wanted to pass a personal story to drive home how important I feel your granddaddy'sgun.com initiative really is. I grew up in a family that was not outdoors-oriented, but was fortunate to have an uncle who was an avid sportsman. As a lifelong bachelor, my brother and I were the closest thing to sons he had. Because of this, he took the time to teach us about fishing and shooting. Last October, he had a major stroke, which left him significantly incapacitated and will result in him spending the remainder of his time in a nursing facility. When it was clear that he would not be coming home, my sister, who had power of attorney, removed over 20 guns from his home, many of which were World War II-era military rifles, along with hunting rifles that had been passed down from my grandfather. There were also cases of ammunition for all of them. My brother and I are gun owners, and I offered to help with this, but was turned down. My mother and sister and brother-in-law are extremely anti-gun. So our attempts to try to emphasize how they needed to be properly handled and stored were treated with suspicion. In May, things have reached the point where there, the, his home needed to be sold to pay for continuing care at the nursing facility, so an estate sale was arranged. Our understanding was that anything they had removed earlier would remain in storage, and we would address those items as a family at a later date. 
My brother and I both expressed our desire to keep the guns in the family and offered to pay fair market value for them when the time came. The morning of the sale, I was told they intended to include all the guns as well. With no way to make the five-hour trip in time, I begged them not to do it and offered again to buy all of them for whatever price they were asking. But they had made up their minds. In the end, his entire collection was sold off at an average of $200 a gun, some less. It makes me incredibly sad to think the legacy of those rifles, the stories that surrounded them, and their connections to my uncle and grandfather is now broken. I've resolved that I will leave nothing to chance when it comes to my guns. They will be passed on to my boys and my grandchildren, hopefully by my hand. But through explicit directive, should something happen to me before that take place. I agree with your statement that this generation is the one that will surrender our right to bear arms if we stand by and do nothing. Lesson sadly learned the hard way. Thanks for all you do, Jack Patrick. And I bet you this man, this uncle, if he was told of what happened, would be saddened to his core that his nephews were denied the ability to have his property handed down to him. You know, I have to say this. I think what your mother and your sister and your brother-in-law did were just, it was extremely low. If it was my family, I wouldn't speak to them, ever. I mean, you're letting your political ideology get in the way of your 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 son having something left behind from their uncle for no reason, for no good reason, other than your political ideology. I have actually far worse harsh words but since your mother's involved instead of just your sister, I'll, I'll hold back. But if it was me, I, I'll just let it go. But I never thought of this, guys, when it came to Granddaddy's Gun Club. I never thought of how, but I know this happens. I've talked to people that deal with the states and stuff and people fighting over things and, and things like that. And um, Oh, hell no. It, it, the guns that I have will go to the people that I choose to have them, Period. And yeah, many of them will go from my hand to theirs through Granddaddy's Gun Club. If you guys don't know what Granddaddy's Gun Club is, I, I want to tell you a little bit about it here at the end of today's show. Granddaddy's Gun Club is um, it's just an online community right now that's currently growing. Uh, we have quite a few hundred members already, and it's designed to create local groups that meet, that do campouts, that do shoots, that just hang out together, do range days, whatever it is. But... Also, that to those events, you bring guns that mean something to you, that you've earmarked, that you said, you know, this is a gun that I'm never going to go take to a gun show and trade in. I'm not going to put it you know, up for sale. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pawn it. This is a gun that has a story, and it's going to stay in my family, and it's earmarked to be handed down. And when the day comes to hand it down, that at an event, you hand it down to the person that you've chosen, and you tell the story one last time before it crosses from your hand to theirs. And even though it's Granddaddy's Gun Club, it's not just for granddaddies. Um, gun does not have to have been from your grandfather. You could be the grandfather someday. It could be a brand new gun that you've bought for a reason, that you're going to carry for a while, that you're going to leave to your son or your grandson or your granddaughter. Women are welcome. Everybody's welcome. As long as we share the common ideal. That we have a right to our property. And you shall not take it from us. With that, I think it's a good time to wrap up for the day. All right, so I already did my MSB plug today, so we'll leave that alone. But another way you can support the show is by going to tspaz.com, www.tspaz.com. What happens when you go there? You end up at amazon.com. That's all that happens. And you do your shopping on Amazon like you're, you're going to do anyway. So if you're going to buy something from Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first, do your shopping, 
No extra work, and you'll support our show. And every day, you'll see a new item. Today's item is a book. I did a book on Friday that I left over the weekend. It was kind of cool. It was called Ten Acres Enough. It was written in the 1860s. And uh, a lot of you guys look like you picked up a copy of that. It's kind of a cool book, and it really does fall in with the homesteading thing and all. Today's book is about making bread. I won't tell you exactly what it's about, but it's about making bread. And uh, I'm not a big bread eater um, because it's too much carbohydrate as far as I'm concerned from my diet. But a lot of you guys eat bread. And I'm not going to tell you not to eat bread if you want to eat bread. And what I will say, though, is you'd be better off making your own bread. And what if you could do it a really easy way? If you go to tspaz.com today, you'll see the best book I've ever heard of about that subject right there. Really, really cool. And uh, every day there'll be something different, that tspaz. And if you don't want that item, just, you know, Search for what you do want and buy it because you were going to do it anyway and support our show so it doesn't cost you anything. And you get to see something cool every day. Everything you see will either be something I've used or I've found that other listeners of the TSP community has purchased through the link and I've evaluated and decided it is a good quality item. Next up, consider using our business directory at tspbiz.com. That's where you can find other members of our community to do business with. Our business directory supporter of the day is bubweb.com, web hosting provider with site hosting starting at just $10 a year. Find bubweb under the business services category in the TSP business directory. And, of course, there will be a link in today's show notes for them as well. With that, let's go into our closing song today. Um, yesterday was Father's Day. And there's been a song I've been just I've wanted to share with you guys for a long time by Jimmy Buffett. You guys know I've, I've played you guys a lot of Jimmy Buffett. I've had some of you guys go, I love Jimmy Buffett, and you play music by him I never even knew existed, you know. And I haven't even begun to play some of the fringe Buffett stuff, like you know, uh, there's no nothing soft about hard times or something like that, uh, or uh, Ace, right? There's some there's some real off the off the the main record label stuff by Jimmy that's kind of cool music, but. Uh, This song is, you know, it's on main labels, and it's it's a great song. And it's a perfect song for Father's Day, if you have a daughter. If you have a son, not as much, but I've already played the song for you in the past um, that, uh, that Jimmy wrote for his son. Um, it's called Beach House on the Moon, and his son's named Cameron. Well, this song is far more obvious that it's for his daughter. His daughter's name is Savannah Jane. I think she's probably about my age at this point, just to give you an idea how long Jimmy's been around. Um, but he wrote this when she was very little. And he said, when he was you know, discussing why he wrote the song, he said, basically, if you're a musician, if you're a songwriter, and you don't write a song about your daughter, you go to hell. And, of course, he meant it as a joke, but I think he was making a point, too. Like, I've written about everything else that's important in my life. Why wouldn't I write a song for my, my daughter? And this song is called Little Miss Magic. And it is... Just, I mean, if you've ever listened to Jimmy and heard songs like, Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw, right? This is not what you would expect from Jimmy Buffett. Uh, by now you should, because I've played a lot of this stuff for you like this. Um, but this song has always meant a lot to me, even though I don't have a, a daughter. Uh, but the reality is, in uh, a couple weeks or less, I'm going to have a little granddaughter that will be named Tegan. And uh, I guess I'll even like this song better after that. I'm sure my son will. Uh, once he has Little Miss Magic in his life. So even though we've talked about a lot of really grim, harsh stuff today, remember, it's about family, it's about community, it's about self-sufficiency, it's about self-reliance, taking care of yourself, taking care of your community, taking care of those around you, taking care of your family, respecting the people in your lives, doing the best you can for them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 
Constantly amazed by the blades of the fan on the ceiling The clever little glances she gives me can't help but be appealing She loves to ride into town with the top down Feel that warm breeze on her gentle skin She is my next of kin I see a little more of me every day I catch a little more mustache turning gray Your mother is the only other woman for me Little Miss Magic, what you gonna be? Sometimes I catch her dreaming and wonder where that little mind meanders Is she strolling along the shore or cruising o'er the broad savannah? I know someday she'll learn to make up her own rhymes. Someday she's gonna learn how to fly. Oh, that I won't deny. I catch a little more dialogue coming my way. I see those big brown eyes just start to look in astray. Your mother's still the only other woman for me. Little Miss Magic, what you gonna be? Yes, she loves to ride into town with the top down Feel that warm breeze on her gentle skin She is my next of kin Constantly amazed by the blades of the fan on the ceiling Those clever little looks she gives just can't help but be appealing I know someday she'll learn to make up her own rhymes One day she's gonna learn how to fly That I won't deny I see a little more of me every day I feel a little more mustache turning gray Your mother's still the only other woman for me Little Miss Magic What you gonna be, Little Miss Magic? What you gonna be, Little Miss Magic? Just can't wait to see. It's raining, it's pouring, your old man is snoring. 